Welcome to The F Word, Conversations on Faith. I'm your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky, and it is so good to have you back. Thanks for listening, and I'm joined today again by my friend and radio legend, John Carney. John, how are you? Good. I've been sitting by my phone waiting for you to call. <laughs> I know. I didn't hear from you for a couple of weeks. Well, we're back together How's radio going for you? You know what? It's uh, it's good. It it is good. If I could just uh, figure out a way to do this from home. Oh wait a minute. Never mind. No, it's fantastic. I do it from home, and I sit in my bathrobe and I talk to people from my basement, which is also the definition of insanity. So there you go. It is it, we've talked about this before. It's hard because both of us use life experiences and interactions with people, and all that goes into, in my case, preaching. In your case, radio. And the hardest thing about the pandemic is we do not get to interact with people uh, near as much. And that's why we started the mailbag here at the F Word. So I, the you can email me questions at the F Word at gatheringnow.org, and this week we actually got some questions, right? We do, and I'm honored and surprised that you gave me the password to get into these uh, to get into these messages, and these are a lot nicer and kinder than the ones that I receive at the radio station, so I might actually take these, change a few of the names, and tell the boss these are uh, questions that came into me from my listeners. But are you ready for well, yours? Yeah. Now, now, I you got in, you saw the question. Are these real questions? You're not making these up, like, on the fly, are you? And I, I would think by the first couple of questions, you will quickly realize these are way above my intellect level, and I could not have made these up. Okay. Well, let's hop in. What do you got? Uh, Sarah... And we'll just call her Sarah because that's her name. Uh, she asks, after your talk regarding faith and politics, I find myself asking what specifically does the Bible say about the role government should play in our lives as Christians? Big question. Good question. Timely question. Uh, all right. I'll, let me say a couple things about this. So the Bible covers a long period of time, thousands of years, which means there's all sorts of different governments in the Bible. You know, the Old Testament is essentially centered around a theocracy. I mean, the idea that, you know, God is in charge of Israel. He's, he's the king of Israel and that everybody else, uh, humans that are governing are governing on behalf of God. And so that's really the way government is pictured in the Old Testament. So in that case, you have a government that is supposed to represent God. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, we have something really different. We have um, Jewish people and later Christians living under a foreign ruler, in this case, the Rome and the Roman emperor. And so in this case, government does not represent God, or at least not the God of, of the Jews or the, the God of Christians. And so in that environment, there's kind of this tightrope that the writers in the Bible have to walk. On the one hand, they tell Christians, look, um, governments are not here by accident. Even foreign governments, God's still in control. God's appointed these governments to 
um, you know, oversee people and keep the order and exact justice and all these kinds of things. So, you know, governments are appointed by God. Paul says that in uh, his letter to the Romans, and therefore you should obey them and you should be obedient and you should respect them and honor them and all this. So that's kind of on the one hand, but the Bible also indicates that we aren't to forget that ultimately God is in charge. So at these times when the government does something or wants you to do something that God would not want you to do or that is in violation of your faith, this is the time to resist the government. And so I think that's a that's a long way of saying, I think the approach of Scripture is, you know, governments are appointed by God, so honor them and obey them as much as you can. And then when um, they're asking you to do something that you perceive to be unjust or in violation of what God wants you to do, then uh, in those cases, we are to resist. And we see examples of this, you know, in the Bible itself, and later Christians would have to decide, you know, the emperor of Rome would say, you know, bow down and, you know, take make a pledge or call Caesar Lord. And they would have to say, you know, I can't do this because Jesus is Lord. And they would get into trouble in some cases being executed. So I think that's the tightrope that the Bible walks in terms of the role government ought to play in our lives. Let me take Sarah's ball and run with that a little bit. A couple of times you had mentioned that governments are appointed by God. Uh, If that were to be taken literally, one would wonder why we bother with something called voting. Well, yeah, and or or another related question is, what about these really awful leaders? Are they appointed by God? And and so I think that again, this gets into a complicated question, but essentially that yes, God is in control. God, nothing happens without God allowing it to happen. But within the realm of that, there's free will. People make decisions, good decisions, bad decisions. So. Uh, you know, I don't believe, and I don't think Scripture believes that God's like a puppet master causing everything to happen. We still have a very uh, real role to play, especially in a democracy, to say um, to to choose our leaders and to choose the kind of leadership that we want to live under. Um, sometimes, really bad people get into leadership, and that's why we're not to blindly obey leaders as if they're simply representatives of God. And so I, I think that's part of that tightrope is is the authors of Scripture don't want you to think that, hey, this wacky leader, in the case of wacky leaders, is in control and God's not. God's still ultimately in control. At the same time, God's not responsible for this awful, wacky leader, and therefore you have a role to play in, in kind of resisting that. If I can be a hair more secular here, yep. it says in our Constitution that there is to be a separation between church and state. Yet, quite often we see that clashing with a manger set in front of City Hall or a Pledge of Allegiance done in a state school, or even the word God appearing on money. So back to Sarah's question about the role of government in our lives as Christians, where do you weigh in on that battle? Yeah, you know, unlike some Christians, I I don't think that, you know, the the reason for the decline of America is blamed on, you know, prayer no no longer being in school or not being able to, you know, 
chisel the Ten Commandments in the courthouse or something like that. I mean, all these things are kind of markers of what I call like civil religion. I mean, for a long time, religion has been co-opted by states to sort of keep people in line and keep order. But but the state never really had an interest. And we see this all the way back to Rome, and it's true in America as well. Like, we use religion just enough to kind of say, come on, people, behave. But we don't really want the the harder or the more controversial parts of what faith requires of us. So I'm a big believer that um, the state has a role to play. We ought to let it play that role, that the, the best kind of country to live in is one where people have freedom to practice the religion that they want without the state interfering in that. And it's the church's role to teach um, the faith of Christianity and what that ought to look like. And those thing, those two things can fit together without the state having to play church or the church having to play state. All right, question number two comes to us from listener Brian, who catches the show with his dad, and he said his dad has a question. It seems like you, Pastor, voted for Biden, and he wants to know how you reconcile voting for somebody who believes in abortion rights. He obviously is pro-life and has a hard time voting Democrat uh, when they generally are not pro-life. So an issue that is... Age old. Want that one? Oh, gosh. <laughs> We're starting with uh, some really tough questions. Okay, first, I, um, I will not talk about necessarily who I voted for. I mean, I appreciate that people try to pick up on who I might be for or against, but let me just talk about this, sort of separating this out, because a lot of Christians vote Democrat. They vote for candidates who are so-called pro-choice. And I do think this pro-life issue is one that a lot of Christians will use as the reason they voted, vote for Republicans or like voted for Donald Trump or something like that. And I do think, I actually think this is a big problem right now. Uh, many Christians are one-issue voters. And let me talk about a few reasons why I think this is a problem. The first reason I think this is a problem, when Christians say, you know what, it doesn't matter what they're like, who they are, their character, any of their policies, as long as they're pro-life, you know, that's what I want to vote for. Well, first, I think that leads to really easy manipulation by politicians. Because essentially what you're saying is all one has to do is say, I oppose abortion. I'm pro-life. And they get the votes of millions of people, this huge cohort of evangelical Christians in our country. And even though the the likelihood that they'll change the law is small or maybe even impossible if it's a local or state candidate, like they don't even have the power to change that particular law. And I would just invite Christians who vote this way to consider that this has basically been the argument from some conservative politicians for the better part of 40 plus years that vote for me, we're going to, you know, we're going to get rid of abortion. It has not happened to date. And the, the likelihood of it happening is, um, is questionable. And, but what they've gotten in return is the loyal support of a bunch of voters, no matter what else they stand for. So that's one problem I have with the one issue voting. Secondly, I, I really think that when we say we're pro-life, and I'm all for uh, that label in a, in a broad sense, I'm all about life. I mean, I think that's what scripture is about. But when we say we value life, you know, let's be consistent about it. You know, if you value life in the womb, do you value life on death row? You know, we ought to be opposed to the death penalty because that's a taking of, of a human life that uh, we believe is sacred. Do we value the kind of life that people have? Do we value the life of immigrants? Do we value the life of 
uh, people who are impoverished or homeless? Do we value the life of people who don't have access to, to health care? Do we want to give people tools to, to live and thrive? I mean, so I think there's more to valuing life and to promoting life than, than simply caring about it um, before someone's born. We should care about it after someone's born. And to me, it just seems to defy logic to vote solely on a single issue because that person that you vote for at some point in their career is going to have to acquiesce to get some other things done. So if your candidate's going to give a little to get a little, don't you think you probably need to do the same well, and, and I think a lot of Christians see it. I mean, when we characterize abortion as, you know, the, the murder of children or something like that, it becomes outrageous to consider voting for anybody who supposedly wants to do that. But the last point I would make is I, I, I really think there's a difference between the slogans we give to politicians, pro-choice and pro-life, and what their policies actually lead to. And so I, I would love to see a world in which the number of abortions is reduced. I, that's the world I want to live in, where we don't, where we do not see as many abortions. And a lot of people on both sides of the aisle want a world where fewer abortions happen. They have different uh, uh, thoughts about how we get there. And so, you know, the, the pro-life position, politically at least, is basically we need to criminalize abortion. And that's the pathway to that happening. Whereas actually there's a lot of research that says this isn't necessarily the best way to reduce the number of abortions. So the last thing I would say is I think Christians can all agree that like less abortions is, is better in the world. And how we get there, I actually think that we can have a good faith argument on both sides of the aisle about the best way to do that. So I'll just say, John, we could talk forever about this one. We could, do, I will at some point do a whole episode about this one, but those are my quick thoughts to, to Brian and his, and his dad. And there's, you know, I've always had a rule of thumb and I don't do a call in show like I used to, but I used to nightly for five hours talk to 44 states and there would be three issues that I would not discuss. One was abortion, one was gun rights, and the other one was race. And all of those incredibly important, absolutely. But I have never come across a single individual that I have seen change their stance on that with any more information. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I, I just have to say, I, I get sensitive to this, not because I'm, you know, I, I want to be characterized as pro-choice or pro-life or anything like that, but I really think Christians have been used on this issue by politicians. And, and Christians, if they wisened up, would recognize that um, being a one-issue voter leaves you really open to manipulation. So I th I uh, Pastor Matt, I know you got another—I'm sorry to mean to jump on you there. Pastor Matt, I know you got another segment coming up with a guest, but I got one more question if— you're not too exhausted to tackle it. Let's do it. Uh, this one not signed, uh, but the question was this. How much of the Bible do you think actually happened? Or is it all just stories to use as tools to live good, quality, fulfilling lives? I like that question. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh well, let me answer this quickly, and then again, it's a big question. We could talk more about it. You know, so, so the Bible is a big book. <laughs> I mean, and in fact, if you read the Bible, it's made up of a bunch of other books. And so, you know, we, we have all these books of the Bible, 66 books of the Bible, and they're all a little different. And so when we read the Bible, one of the important things to recognize is what is it that we are reading? 
And what I mean by that is when you read the Bible, some of the Bible is history. It is telling you things that actually happened to answer the listener's question. But other parts of the Bible, like the Psalms, for example, are prayers or songs or poetry. Some parts of the Bible are parables or stories, analogies that aren't meant to be taken literally, like the parables of Jesus. And so the Bible is actually full of all kinds of literature. And so when people ask me, you know, do you think all the stuff in the Bible actually happened? I always say, well, it it depends on which part of the Bible you're reading. So, you know, if you're if you're reading the the parts about Jesus being resurrected, I believe that happened. That's written down as as something that the disciples and those first witnesses believed was history. But if you ask me, do I really believe that uh, Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, for example? Well, that I think is more questionable because it, there's a there's an argument that actually that entire story is actually a a parable to teach us something about faith. And so I think, John, the answer is we really have to understand this is why studying is important. You can't just say, well, I read it. The Bible says that's what I read. I believe it. You have to understand uh, what kind of literature am I reading in this particular part of the Bible? (laughs) Good advice. Stay away from whales. All right. Well, that's true. That was fun. We are going to continue to do that. And you can email us your questions. John will read them and ask them. I'll try to answer them. The F word at gatheringnow.org. So please uh, let us know you're listening. If it's with your mom or dad, great. Uh, put their question in there. Thanks to all of you that put one in. And if you email the F word at gatheringnow.org, we will answer more of your questions next week. Now, up next after the break, uh, I am really excited. I get to interview Josh Caterer, lead singer and guitarist for the punk rock band Smoking Popes, who after an overdose became a Christian. And it is a wild story. So uh, I hope to see you back after the break. This is the F word conversations on faith on the big 550 KTRS. At the gathering, we believe that we as people were built for connection and in this current season it's never been more important to be and feel a part of something you can experience that sense of belonging in several ways at the gathering simply visit gatheringnow.org to explore what the gathering has to offer you might start by joining us for weekly worship both live stream and on demand and then join one of our facebook groups to stay connected there's one for each location and even for our online community At the gathering once here, we will encourage you to deepen your faith further and join a core group to learn and grow alongside others. No matter who you are or where you've been, we invite you to meet new people and explore your faith, whatever that means for you. After all, it's through connecting with others that God has revealed to us. The best first step you can take is joining us for worship on Sunday. Again, You can find all the information on how to connect to the gathering by visiting gatheringnow.org. We have multiple services on Sunday, and you can also catch us on demand anytime throughout the week. We hope you'll join us soon. Welcome back to the F Word Conversations on Faith. I'm your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky. And, you know, I was thinking we all have, we all have a story, kind of an interesting story. But my guest today I think has a really interesting one. Josh Caterer grew up in Chicago and along with his brother started the punk rock band Smoking Popes. And after finding quite a bit of success, signing with a record record label, touring with some of the biggest names, Josh went through a personal crisis that really changed him and the direction of what he wanted to do with his life. And today he is still a musician, still 
uh, making albums, but is also the director of worship at his church, Village Bible Church. And so, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Glad to talk to you. Yeah, I'm excited to dig in. We were talking just before this. There's so much I want to cover, and and we have just a little bit of time. So I want to kind of jump into your story. I, now, I have to admit, I'm a kid of the 90s, so your band was one that I listened to. Uh, and I knew about, I, I didn't know so much of what happened after the rest of your story. Uh, but let's start at the beginning. Talk a little bit about what probably most people know you for, which is you grew up and along with your brothers, you started a, a punk rock band called Smoking Popes. Talk a little bit about kind of how that happened, why you gravitated toward uh, punk rock music. Um, well, my my brothers and I uh, have always loved a wide variety of uh, styles of music. Uh, you know, we grew up in a very musical home, and our parents had a lot of records. Like uh, our dad had like probably a couple of hundred albums. You know, as as kids, would just you know be looking through this sort of library of albums and just. You know, if we liked the look of an album cover, we would put it on and see what it sounded like, you know. And so uh, just in general, music lovers. But then when we when we got old enough to start buying our own records, quickly we found out about punk. And there was there was something about uh, the the sensibility of it, the the, the energy of it, the, the kind of uh, dangerous quality. Um, the snarkiness of it, like the, the sort of the, the wit of like, uh, for example, the Dead Kennedys was one of our favorite uh, bands, and there's such a there's such a acerbic kind of biting wit to that uh, music that it it really was uh, appealing to us. So like, you know, punk ended up being the kind of music that we played, but I think we, you know, I would have been happy back then, you know, playing in a blues band or a hard rock band. It just so happened right. that the, where, where our heads were at right then. Let me, so Smoking Popes, you know, you started this band and it did what a lot of bands really only dream of. I mean, you, you, you made it essentially, you signed with a, a record label, you toured with, people like Green Day or Jimmy Eat World or producer Jeff's favorite band over here, Jawbreaker. What was that like? I mean, what were the upsides and downsides of, quote, success? I mean, uh, t take us through that just a little bit. The, there are definitely both upsides and downsides of all that. You know, the great thing is that I got, that we got to, to meet bands like that, like, mm -hmm. um, like Jawbreaker, uh, for example, since we're, since they, they came up, I mean, that was a band that, that we had been listening to. And there are other examples of that, just sort of getting to, getting to associate with people that you otherwise wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, uh, I, I sort of cherish all of those interactions and, and friendships that I've been able to, to get. So that, I mean, that's a good thing. And, um, becoming a successful band, I mean, depending on what your definition of success is, but, uh, 
certainly during the 90s, a, a more commercially successful band with a major label and videos on MTV back when MTV used to show videos. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that was something that I would say the good part about that is this, the, the the exposure. So that like basically wherever else you go, years down the down the road, um, you always you're you're starting with sort of a foundation of there was a period of time where your your music was um, getting out to a lot of people, but uh, there were downsides too, um, especially because when when that was when we got when we were getting caught up in that, I guess is the way that I, I would put it. Um, we were relatively young. I was in my early twenties when that was happening, and I wasn't ready for that. Um, yeah. When you go from just being a band, you know, and you're just sort of a regular person working a day job and you know playing uh, small shows on weekends and stuff, and then and then you move into this other arena where the songs that you're writing, which had been previously done out of just fun or pure inspiration or whatever. Now the things that you're creating are inherently more corporate because you are involved in a corporation. I mean, you've yeah. got A&R guys and there are, there are departments of people that are like marketing your music. And so you're, you're sitting in boardrooms with people talking about what your video is supposed to look like. And, it's I remember feeling a sense of like a loss of control. Like we had, we had latched onto something that was a lot bigger than us and we, we weren't completely in control of who we were as a band anymore. And we kept trying to, to hold on to that control, but we were fighting, you know, with this big company. And uh, I think your, your twenties are a difficult, decade anyway just as far as how you feel about yourself and you're sort of becoming an adult and a lot of people have anxiety issues during those years and I certainly ended up having that um so it was just a it was a difficult time yeah um well and you know I look back and and just say like I'm part of the music that we made and the albums that we made but personally I wasn't handling it very well and I made a lot of bad decisions you know I you know, if you don't mind, I, I know you've talked publicly about some of those bad decisions and, and some of what happened to you during the time. Can, can you share, I mean, what happened to you personally and, and, um, and, and what, what, what were those bad decisions ultimately that led to kind of a crisis moment in your, in your life and eventually your vocation, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, that sense of feeling, that sense of feeling overwhelmed that I was talking about. Um, I, I responded to that by, uh, you know, starting to smoke pot constantly. I think for, for a couple of years there, while all of that was going on, uh, I was stoned pretty much all day, every day. <laughs> and then, but there was also, um, fairly heavy drinking going on and occasionally, um, you know, experimentation with, with other things, um, Although, with, although with mostly weed and alcohol, but it all sort of it all sort of came to a to a head at one point when we were um, I can't remember what year this happened. I think it was ninety ninety seven mm -hmm. ninety eight ninety eight. I don't know. We were out uh, in California playing uh, a show there at uh, 
a place called the Roxy, and it was uh, it was like a label showcase because they uh, Capitol had already released um, they had re-released our album Born to Quit, which had come out originally on an independent label, and I got picked up by Capitol and they reissued it. We toured on that, and then we made a new album called Destination Failure that was about to come out, and so we went to uh, Hollywood and played this show that was like a you know, they call it a, a showcase, a label showcase, which meant like a bunch of people from our label were there. So it was very important that night that we didn't suck. <laughs> but uh, I went out I, I went out before the show and got fairly drunk. And so uh, the show did suck because I could I couldn't I wasn't playing very well or performing very well. And then after the show, uh, we went out to a party and uh, I, I, did, I did not have a lot of experience with cocaine, but I did a bunch of it that night and ended up feeling like uh i was gonna die <laughs> like my 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 heart was racing to the point where you know my brother told me he could see it through my shirt just pounding and uh and i must have looked pretty freaked out because he he said uh why don't you go just try and relax and and uh we'll uh you know he ended up calling calling an ambulance for me i was waiting for this ambulance to show up and i just laid down on this uh this patio and just sort of looked up at the sky and I was a person of no fixed religion at that point. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, I just looked up at the sky and just said, God, um, if you're there, if you're real, uh, I need you to help me. And I, I, I'm, I'm too young to die. I just need you to help me. Just reach, reach down your hand for me and, and, and get me through this. And I won't, I won't live like this anymore. I'll, I'll, I'll give you my life and however you want me to live is, is how I'll live. Then the paramedics showed up and, you know, put me on a stretcher and took me in and checked me out. And they, they pretty much, you know, gave me, uh, some sedatives to calm me down and slow my heart down and made sure that I wasn't going to have a heart attack and then sent me on my way. And so I, uh, but I was that that was a turning point for me. That that was that was the the moment, the event that started me on a on a spiritual journey, um, where I started looking for for truth and specifically looking for God. Uh, I was convinced then that he was that he was real and that he had heard me. Um, but I had to figure out how to know him and and to have a relationship with him. And sort of how he had revealed himself. So I started looking um, at Eastern religion and reading, you know, some of the teachings of uh, of Buddhism. And I was buying books by the Dalai Lama and uh, going to uh, like meditation groups and just exploring all of that. But then at the same time, I was I started to read the Gospels in the New Testament. <clears throat> I felt like there was something about Jesus in my gut, I just felt like he got it. He somehow knew <laughs> he knew the truth. And so I just kept reading his, his words and his teachings and, and uh, trying to connect that to what I was learning about Buddhism and, and, and the Eastern stuff. Um, and, you know, obviously wasn't able to successfully fuse those two things together because they, they weren't meant to be fused together. And so I, I just had a lot of questions and confusion 
um, about Jesus and, and who he was and what the real significance of his teachings were. And the, the thing that, that really illuminated that for me and, and turned that around was um, when I read the book Near Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Yes. Which wasn't, wasn't something that anybody gave me or recommended. It was just something that I, I was browsing in a bookstore. Oh, wow. And I saw that. I was I saw that title and I said, "Oh, that's C.S. Lewis. He's the he's the Narnia guy. Right. He was a Christian." And so I just bought the book. And uh, somewhere during the course of that book, uh, he was he explained the gospel in a way that was, I mean, if you know C.S. Lewis, his his stuff is is accessible and it's he he is simplifying things, but he is. Uh, he's not talking down to anybody. I always he does tell, not insult the intelligence of his readers at all. That's right. And that spoke to me. Yeah. I always, I mean, that book continues to do that for people. He, he presents uh, Jesus and Christianity in an accessible, but I always think like a really logical, orderly way that at least my mind could connect with. And so I certainly resonate with that. Well, as you, I mean, so as you explored and, and set out on the spiritual journey, I mean, talk to me a little bit. I mean, two things kind of happened. I mean, you were moving toward Christ, eventually toward the church. I mean, uh, in fact, you would end up becoming a, a worship leader in a church, something you still do today. It also simultaneously, yeah. at least at the moment, kind of led you away from smoking popes and, and that life for a while. What was that like for your brother's bandmates? I mean, essentially the band ended, right, for a time uh, during that period? Yes, yeah, because I quit the band, which was something that um, my bandmates uh, had mixed feelings about. I, I think they were, and two of them are my brothers, so like yeah. it's it's very it's very personal, and they saw that they're they saw that their brother had been in a bad place and I was very unhappy and I sort of wasn't doing well. And then when I embraced Christ and he came into my life, um, that obviously changed. I mean, I, my, my brothers were happy that I had gotten to a better place and I had found something that was personally helpful to me, but, um, also, they were upset that uh, I felt like I had to leave the band because of that. I think they kind of uh, they wished that I didn't feel that that was necessary. But at the time, I did. Yeah, and, and I want to ask you about that. I mean, because I think that that's true for a lot of people. I mean, when you when you need to make a change in your life, uh, sometimes it requires not only you know, adopting something new, but leaving behind something old. And just talk a little bit about, is that how you saw things? Like as you moved through that crisis and God showed up to you, did you really feel like you needed to make kind of a clean break? And and why did you feel like yeah. leaving, you know, that world for a time at least was important for where you were headed? I felt like I had to, I had to step away from, the music scene at the time I thought uh, that I was doing that probably for good, but mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I ended up coming back around, but 
but I, I do know that I needed to step away. Uh, and I, I think that part of the reason for that was I was thinking of a, of a couple of, of examples of, of people that had been musicians, successful musicians who, uh, had had like a conversion experience. And then it seemed to, uh, to just sort of dry up and yeah. they just went, they went back to being exactly like they were before. And, uh, I was afraid of that happening to me. I, I desperately did not want this to be just a phase that I went through. I, I really wanted it to take root in my life. And I found that the emphasis that I was putting on trying to incorporate Christianity into my uh, into my music and in, into my art the way that it had existed up to that point was um, there was friction there. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I felt like eventually, you know, the, the band was going to win and I was going to go back to just, I was just sort of give up on that stuff. So I was like, Nope, I need to, I need to just focus on my faith. I need to be this new creation that the Lord is, is making out of me. And, you know, even though, you know, some years later I, I came back to the popes, I'm, I'm really glad that I did that. I think it was an important time because for a few years there, I uh, I just sort of went into this bubble where I was focusing on nothing except for praying, reading the the Bible, growing in my understanding of who God is, uh, attending church and and being in in fellowship with other believers uh, to to sort of discover what you know participating in in a church body really what that mm. what that meant and what that was like. Um, and so I was building this this spiritual foundation, uh, so that eventually, you know, when I went back to rock clubs, I th there was no there was no question anymore of Christianity being like a, a temporary phase in my life. I, I really was a different person than I than yeah. I had been before. Well, I think I, you know I I really appreciate you sharing that because I do think it's so important for people to know that. Um, sometimes that is, I mean, sometimes we can balance it all, but sometimes we really do have to step away even from something that we really enjoyed at one time in order to, uh, pursue something new. And it doesn't mean we'll never return to it, but, uh, it's, it's hard to both, um, allow God to transform you while you're doing the same things <laughs> that you've always done. And so I, I appreciate the, the sort of sacrificial nature of that story for you. But you didn't stay out of music for long. I mean, I want to get to kind of the time when you went back into the Popes and, and other kinds of music, but you ended up playing in a church. I mean, and now you you actually lead worship and, and direct worship for your church. But um, tell me how that happened. I mean, were you just sitting in worship thinking like, I think I need to be up on the stage or I need to lead worship? And, and what's leading in a church like? How's that different from, you know, the performative nature of you know being in a band oh right okay well there there there's a couple questions in there and I'll, I'll i'll start with this one uh the um the way that i got into it was that the the first church that i went to was a, a really small kind of storefront mm -hmm. church in in chicago and the worship team uh just consisted of uh, of two guys, well, there was a piano player and a bass player, 
and uh, and then the the pastor the pastor would get up and and lead worship, and uh, there was they didn't use uh, hymnals. There was no printed lyrics. There was no screens. Um, all they would do were these simple choruses, um, like uh, you know, victory is mine. <laughs> Victory is mine. You're just saying the chorus of "Victory is mine" for yeah, like it's easy. for like five minutes, <laughs> right? Because it's easy, yeah. yeah. And then you switch to a different chorus, um, <laughs> and they would just just do that for a while. And that was worship. And so I, uh, I right away recognized that um, these these two guys that were leading worship, and w- one of these guys. Um, uh, I still play with, uh, today, like, yeah. you know, he's, he, they're lifelong friends of mine and he, but he sometimes comes to my church and plays. The other one has moved away, but, but, um, these guys were just really good players. So it, it was, it was attractive to me. I was like, Hey, this is a way that I could, I could get involved here and, and play with these guys. And it'll be fun to do because they're super talented players, but also, this church, you know, can use more musicians since they only have two. There's definitely yeah. an opening. So I started I started playing guitar there with these guys. And um, it was a really great place to start because, you know, that like if you're just doing like an up-tempo version of like Victory is Mine, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to do some tasty uh, fills over that. You can just sort of... Uh, you can just sort of shred yeah. underneath it and it's just going to lend itself to the song really well, you know, give it sort of like a, a real gospel kind of vibe. Yeah. So, so you, that was, I mean, so, that was a lot of fun. So you kind of got into it. So like I did a... not start. <laughs> yeah. As a musician, but I didn't, I didn't start leading worship at that church because the, the pastors always led worship right. there and I wasn't a pastor, but some years later I ended up, um, meetings people at another church who said that they were they were looking for um somebody to lead worship for their young adult ministry um and so i got involved there and that sort of launched me on the the uh the path of being a vocational worship leader right and now i'm a worship pastor so um we have a little bit of time left, but I have I, I just a, a couple more things I'd I'd love to hit on. So you, I mean, now you okay. you lead. Uh, for, uh, to talk a little bit about what that's like to actually lead in church, music in church, and yeah. how that's different from what you were doing or what you still do when you're like on a stage with a band. Yeah, I would say that the the main difference is that. Um, when I'm on stage with the band, uh, like we are, it, it, it's it's entertainment, meaning that people are looking to the stage um, and listening to what you're doing for the purpose of uh, being entertained by you. Yeah. And uh, you know, so you've got to you've got to do you've got to play something uh, compelling or and even physically. Um, you know, something you, you have, you, you have to be, you know, moving around or expressing yourself in a way that is going to be, uh, somehow engaging and entertaining, uh, to the audience. Um, whereas in worship, 
um, you're not supposed to be doing that <laughs> because the more you do that, uh, the more you're you're taking the focus away from what the intended purpose of the event is, which is to point people toward Jesus Christ. So you're you're trying to create like a musical atmosphere that will have a certain degree of of excellence to it. Like you want it to be good, but you don't want what you're doing on the platform to draw attention to itself. You want people to be interacting with the content of the music. So it's important that the the lyrical content of the songs would be biblical and it would be consistent with who God has revealed himself to be so that when people are singing that stuff, it, there's really an exchange between the the people in the congregation and God. Yeah. Whereas the energy of a performance is more of an exchange between the people in the audience and the people on stage. So it's, it's very horizontal as opposed to the vertical thing that's happening in church. And it's uh, so it really is a, a, just a different mindset, a different way of approaching um, a music, a musical set. Yeah, that resonates with me. I mean, I'm not a musician, but I preach every week and it's this weird role. I mean, you have to. I mean, you want to do it well, you you want to bring who you are to it, but in a sense, you're a mediator in this relationship between people and Christ. And so as a mediator, there, there's a tension. You can't, you really shouldn't make it too much about yourself. And I see that in good worship leaders. They're able to show up and do it well without um, sort of hijacking the relationship that's supposed to be taking place. Um, so... Right. You got back, so you eventually got back into. I, I hate the just you know calling it secular music, I, but you got into sort of non worship leading back into music and bands. Even uh, eventually, the Smoking Popes yeah. reunited. And so, what's different for you now? And I guess in particular, I'm wondering, like you had to, you felt like at one time you had to step away from it so that you could grow in your relationship with Christ. Now you're kind of back in it. Um, is it hard to balance your commitments to Christ and faith with the sort of culture of being back in, you know, a band or punk rock or the music business? Uh, talk a little bit about if there's a tension there at all for you. Um, no, I, I, I don't, I don't feel like there is. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess the only the only way that that it's sometimes difficult is is on tour um you know for touring it's 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 hard because i'm i'm away from uh i'm away from sort of some of the anchors mm -hmm. in my life like i'm i'm away from my my wife and my my church and my small group and these sort of like these rela these relationships that provide kind of spiritual roots and so you can get out there and you can start to feel uh kind of like you're you're drifting and you start to feel isolated and and you just you know you can get to a bad place emotionally if if you're out there for too long and you're not intentional enough about uh connecting to people i've had that happen but like as far as just the 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 world of music itself like like going into a club and and playing a show um i don't feel conflicted about that uh i i feel like uh 
you know, music is music is a is a gift from God uh, that displays His glory, and it displays it in worship music, but it also just displays His glory is displayed in any kind of music that is enjoyed by people. Yeah, uh, the same way that that any kind of creativity. I mean, creativity comes from the Lord, and so anything that that has beauty uh, in it is something that reflects the glory of God. And so I think when people go to a concert, whether it's a worship concert or not, um, and they're, they're appreciating the music, there is sort of like a, a celebration of, of life that is ultimately honoring to God. Um, and I, I find myself, you know, going, going to these environments and, you know, playing shows and just being, being grateful for it. Whereas I used to, mm. I used to make, I used to make music and, and I used to feel like music was the thing. Like I was, I was looking to music itself to be the thing that um, had transcendent meaning. Um, and music was going to be fulfilling and, and art was going to, was going to give larger purpose to my life. And, uh, I was putting all this weight on on the art that only properly belongs on God. Only God can do those things. Only God is able to provide ultimate uh, soul level fulfillment. Mm. Um, so now, if I if we go and play a show and it's a good show and people are happy and like I, they're enjoying it and I'm enjoying it, I just in my heart I'm saying thank you for this, God. And I know that. Um, it is one of the gifts that God has given me in life, and it's not the greatest gift that He has given me yeah. in life. You know. So, Josh, I know we, we have to we have to go. I could talk to you all day long about this stuff, but you are coming out with a new album, The Hideout Sessions. I don't want to end before I ask you what that album's about and kind of uh, why you did it. Um. Yeah, the new album is something that really was born out of the COVID shutdown situation. Uh, last year, uh, the Smoking Popes weren't doing anything. We had had some shows booked, but they all got canceled. And uh, I uh, I was just sort of getting that, that creatively restless feeling. And uh, I saw that there was this club in Chicago called The Hideout that, that was doing these, these virtual shows. Um, and I, I don't know, it, it occurred to me that, A, I wanted to do one of those, but B, that it might give me an opportunity, since the band was kind of on a forced hiatus, uh, instead of trying to get the Popes to do one of those shows, that it would give me an opportunity to play with some guys that I don't normally get to make music with. So I called a couple of friends of mine, John Perrin, who plays drums for NRBQ, and my friend John San Juan, who uh, is in a band called The Hush Drops, and I asked him to play bass on this, although he's also a great guitarist. But uh, I asked him to play bass on this. And, uh, you know, we, we had to figure out uh, a way to safely get together and, and practice. So we found a, a, a rehearsal space that was big enough where we could have some social distance in there. And, and you know, none of us had very much else going on in our lives because everything was shut down and you know sort of still is but 
but us getting together on a weekly basis to to sort of just develop material and work on arrangements became this very uh, wonderfully joyous, cathartic thing. And so we we uh, that culminated in a in a in a show that we played not with there was no audience. It was just we just did a virtual show to an empty club, but we live streamed it. And um, so people could watch it while it was happening. But then we also recorded it and are releasing it as a live album. Um, and it's as an album, it's sort of like uh, it's sort of halfway between a live album and a studio album. It's It's got the energy of a live performance because these are all like mm. single complete takes of the song. But without the audience there, you don't have that that audience noise. Um, you know, so it, yeah. it sounds a more more kind of crisp than a regular live album would sound. And uh, oh. I'm just super happy with how it turned out. I think people are going to like it. We actually, um, we included sort of re reimagined versions of a few Smoking Pope songs on the album. So people will cool. hear, like you just, you played uh, a little while ago a snippet of a song of ours called Megan. And there's a new version of Megan on this album that is has a different tempo and a different feel to it that I think people are are going to like. If they like the Popes, they'll like this. Producer Jeff's going to download as we speak. Well, thanks so much, Josh. People can find out the hideout can find the hideout sessions uh, wherever they get it's, their music and yeah, it's, it's going to come out on Pravda Records. It'll be out at the end of March. Awesome. Josh, thank you so much uh, for your ministry, for what you do, for sharing your story today with us. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation, man. And thanks to you all for listening. This is the F Word Conversations on Faith. Do not forget, all of these episodes are available as a podcast. So just search for the F Word, my name, Matt Miofsky, wherever you get your podcasts. You can share it with somebody else. I hope you do that, that you think would be interested. Leave us a review. Uh, That always helps us to spread the word about the show. And you can always email me at the F Word at gatheringnow.org. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week. The F Word is hosted by me, Matt Miofsky. Jeff Allen is our master producer. Our audio guru is Justin Chenzo, And the one who holds it all together in administration, Amy Sanders. All of us work at a great church here in St. Louis called The Gathering. You can find us at gatheringnow.org.